Good morning. You can tell a lot about a culture based upon the songs they sing and what their poets write about. Well, every culture's poets do think about time because it's something that we all experience. Thought it'd be fun to give us a little sampling of what we have listened to regarding time. Uh, first, an extended piece. There's no time to kill between the cradle and the grave. Father Time still takes a toil on every minute that you save. Legal tenders never going to change the number on your days. The highest cost of living's dying. That's one everybody pays. So have it spent before you get the bill. There's no time to kill. If we had an hourglass to watch each one go by or a bell to mark each one to pass, we'd see just how they fly. Would we escalate the value to be worth its weight in gold or would we never know the fortunes that we had till we grow old? And we, and do we just keep killing time until there's no time to kill? Well, this is one of our poets his name's Clint Black. Many of you know him as a country music star. This is a song from his later years, and interestingly, it is one of his first songs is Just Killing Time. A song about him just wasting away in the bar because he lost the girl he loved. A, other, a number of other songs. Yesterday by the Beatles. Longing for that day when you were with the girl you loved. The future's so bright I have to wear shades. That's, that's great optimism looking forward. Summertime by Fresh Prince and DJ Jazzy Jeff, thinking about that great hot summer day when school's out. Once in a lifetime by the talking heads, that catchy bridge, same as it ever was, a commentary on our suburban dystopia. Time is on my side. And then the Smashing Pumpkins song, 1979, Cool Kids Never Have the Time. Time is an important topic. It's something we all experience. It's something we all know. There's lots of wisdom in time. And I want you to see here that poets for the ages have actually wrestled with what is time and how do we live in the time. The Bible addresses life's most important questions. What, 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 what philosophers and, 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 and poets have, have sought to understand what we long for, the, the Bible gives us answers. And time is one of the most important. God tells us what we need to know. Some questions are obvious. The, the, the question of how do I cope with time? Or maybe we flip that on the others, uh, other way is how do we seize the day? Now I appreciate Brian's prayer for me just now that we be given wisdom from above to answer all of life's questions. Let's just take the slice of time. What, 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 what is God doing? How do, we, how do we enjoy it? How do we live in it according to his word? Uh, we're in Ecclesiastes. If you're new with us, we're walking through this book, seeking to understand God's wisdom. And, and, and here it's a, it's a unique book of the Bible. It, it, it's a mirror of sorts. It's helping us reflect upon what this life under the sun, under the heavens, really is like, and that it's vanity of vanities. It's It's fleeting. It's temporary. It's empty. It's, it's only unsatisfying. And, and then we're going to ask, well, 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 what's more? 
And our, our, our preacher who continued to go through and, and lead us to a grand conclusion, that is, fear God. Obey his commandments. We're going to keep moving forward. You're going to see we make some pretty good progress today. Uh, one sentence summary. Trust God's power, grace, and justice at all times. Trust God's power, grace, and justice at all times. Our first point this morning is time is relentless. Time is relentless. Our preacher introduces another poem. Uh, this follows Hebrew poetry very clearly with parallelism. There, there, there's contrasting declarations side by side that, that, that keep it moving. There's a change in style, so we have a different focus. There's a key word that's repeated over and over again, time. So, so we, 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 we're moving along into a, another section of this preacher's sermon to us. It's beautiful, this poem. It's orderly. It's clear. It's captivating. It, it kind of summarizes all of life at one point. Right? There's a time to be born, a time to die. Time to love, time to hate. If we're to look back, there's a, a, a 60s version of uh, Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds, which is actually a paraphrase of this song. And it's actually so close, we could almost sing it in church, but we're not. <laughs> look at the connection. Verse 1, there's a season. There's a time for every matter. There's a way in which things are being ordained. There's, a, there, there, there's, a, there's an absoluteness to the season and the time. And that's, that's your introduction in the poem. And then each verse introduces a new concept. Verse 2 is about the beginning and end of life. Time to be born. Time to die. That's for us, humans. Uh, we can look at the, the, the other vegetation. There's a time to plant and to pluck up. A beginning and end of life. There's a time to kill and heal, break and build. It captures emotions in verse 4, the, the full range to, to weep and to laugh, to mourn and dance. Verse 5 is about your relationship with neighbors, to cast away stones. That means you're, you're going to pick up the stones and throw them out of the garden and a time to gather stones together. The, the, the idea there might be the, the, the casting stones is actually putting them in your neighbor's garden if you're getting upset with them. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. Verse 8, notice it actually, there's an inversion. A time to love coincides with a time to, for peace. A time to hate coincides with a time for war. He broke the pattern there at the end. Now, we can read this and say, what wisdom? Oh, I how, how, how our preacher is telling us all the different kinds of things we experience, all the, all the different things that happen in life. It, it helps understand there's, there's a constant movement and kind of like we'll weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Life is full of change. We experience different things. That's one way we could read it, but I, I don't think that's really understanding it in its context. The, the preacher who preached chapter 1, verses 2 to 11, that begins... Vanity of vanity is all his vanity. He didn't all of a sudden become an optimist. He, he didn't all of a sudden become some hippie in the 60s. No, he, he's, he's still very much 
Sounded like a pessimist, or if you're a pessimist, a realist. I don't think he's, he's changed the mood. I think this is saying something quite different than just, oh, all things are changing and we're just going to keep moving and enjoying it. No, I think there's something more like the great philosopher Mrs. Gump, who told her son, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. There, there's a, a sense in which this is supposed to be an uncontrollable force. You have no control over the thing and its time and what's happening. There's going to be times that you'll be forced into sorrow. There's going to be times where you should rejoice. There's going to be times where you'll be forced into war. And there's times of peace. There's going to be times where you're forced into these kinds of difficulties. The whole idea is that time is full and you have no control over what time it is. Think about Forrest Gump. What a life. He taught Elvis to dance, ran touchdowns back for Bear Bryant, won the Medal of Honor, was a ping-pong champion. He's a founder of Bubba Gump Shrimp. He had a full life, and if you, you think about the movie, he has no plans, he has no ambition. He's just walking along, and all these good things keep happening to him. Think about what happens all around him, though. His mother leads a lonely life, desperate to care for her children. Jenny, his best friend, is horribly abused by her father, leads a life of disorder, looking for all happiness and all the wrong men, and then suffers an untimely death to an unnamed disease. Bubba dies in battle. Sergeant Dan loses his legs. Tragically, he doesn't die in battle. Forrest Gump makes his fortune as a shrimp boat captain because all the other boats were destroyed. That's losing all their livelihood. It's time to win the Medal of Honor. It's time to die. Time to run kickoffs back. It's time to lose your legs. Time to, run, time to have a monopoly in the shrimp boat business. Time to lose your livelihood. Time to meet your son. It's time to die mysterious disease. Now, let me be clear. I, I don't have any insight that Ecclesiastes inspired Forrest Gump. There's a way in which the movie pictures just, there's no, there's no rhyme or reason. Those who had plans and ambitions, that everything wrong happens for them. And Gump is this guy in the middle who just keeps walking everything good. It's uncontrollable what happens to us, good or bad. We need to perceive that, that there's season, these seasons are actually forced upon us. To try to capture, I think, what's happening, there's a time for miscarriages. And there's a time for rejoicing of new life. There's a time for losing a job, and there's a time for promotion. There's a time for learning, a time for teaching, a time to rejoice of a new marriage, and time to grieve the devastating effects of a bad one. There's a time to enter the workforce, a time to retire. If you're Don Brady, who knows? Maybe not. We're supposed to look at this poem and feel the weariness. We have no control over time. It, it keeps moving. The, the, the clock keeps ticking. Tick, tock. Tick, tock. And we have no control. You ever wonder why the crocodile in Peter Pan has a tick, tock? Because it elegant, the crocodile. He, he took a bite out of Captain Hook. He took his hand. And now he, he has a taste for him. He's chasing him. Time is chasing him. 
There's a picture there of the, the fleeting of life. That's why he's terrified. Time demands what it wants of us in its season. And it's relentless. We have a few choices as to how to wrestle with this relentless picture of time. One, you, you could go Peter Pan. You could decide you never want to grow up. Our culture is more than happy to enable that option. Just play games, avoid responsibility, delight in desire, not duty. Students, children, the one thing we want to be committed to is that we want to help you grow up in Christ. That means you know how to fully embrace his love, mercy, and the great responsibility of being part of the work he's given to you. The second option, you can come up with some way to pretend you have control over time. You could read your horoscope. You could create meticulous schedules. You could have lots of plans and ambitions. You could pretend daylight savings is somehow helpful. And you'll end with exhaustion. The third option, you can look above and beyond time. And see that time has a master. This is what our preacher is going to give us next. He's going to look beyond time, the the relentless, ever-going presence of time, and, 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 and how you don't have any control over what it brings. He's going to help us look up. The second point of the sermon, God orders our time. Time is relentless, and now we see that it is God who orders our time. This is verses 9 to 15. If you're here with the first two sermons, you're, you're going to hear something very similar. Look at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Well, that, that takes us back to the first poem. Again, he's, he's progressing us slowly but surely through understanding the vanity of life so that we would fear God and keep his commandments. What does man gain from all his toil? That's still the key question. At least last week we had there's nothing better for man. That he still said was vanity. And now we're going to continue to wrestle. Look at verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. We've heard that before, haven't we? Underneath the first poem. Chapter 1, verse 13. Kind of that first summary. But, but there he actually says, I know the business of man. It's, a, it's an unhappy business. There's something un, unhappy, there's something difficult, there's, there's a problem in the business that God has given the children of man to have. As we continue to look at Ecclesiastes, it is a, it's wisdom on how to live after Genesis 3. How to live because we are sinners, we, how to live in a world that's full of sin, how to live in a world that now has a curse, how to live in a world that is now appearing to be relentless and indifferent. What is the business of man? Now there's a major shift. Notice we have more about God in this passage than ever before. We have a a significant amount of information that he's giving us from his perspective about God. God has given us business to be busy with. Well, now we're going to pick up and, 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 and he's going to introduce new information for us to wrestle with. Verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Well, that sounds sweet. 
I, I, I keep trying to find, where can I find, you know, different phrases from Ecclesiastes on a coffee mug. This one's everywhere. What I was surprised I didn't find was a mirror with this engraved over it so you can look in the mirror and see that and think, oh, look, you know, beautiful. Hobby Lobby's really missing out on opportunity there. Now, beautiful. He has made everything beautiful in his time. A question we have to ask is, all right, is this something we're supposed to agree with with the preacher? I ask, is, is everything beautiful? Let's go back to the list. Is war beautiful? No. The pictures I've seen from what's going on in Ukraine, I have a hard time seeing aesthetic value in it. You look at pictures after a tsunami, it's devastating. The, the word here, beautiful, could, could also be translated appropriate. And I think that's a better word. And, it, and you can tell there's, a, there's an overlap between beauty and, and appropriate, fit. Everything that's beautiful is, is appropriate. There's a, a fitness, an order to it. Something that is beautiful, it, it's appropriate. You know, if you're going through that, that jar of scraps and you're looking for just the right nut to fit the bolt and you find it, finally you might say, oh, beautiful, I, I, I found it. It works, it's appropriate. We can also say, Eve, she was beautiful. Adam thought so because only woman has ever seen, but she, she's beautiful. But the most thing, important thing about her is that she fit. God said, I'll give you a helper fit. And, 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 he, and he praises God. It's bone in my bone, flesh in my bone. It, she fits. I believe there's a better way of understanding what he's saying here. He makes everything appropriate in his time. He, he's ordering all things. He is sovereign. He is in control. It's encouraging for us in the time that is relentless, uh, the time that can appear to be chaotic and indifferent. God is making everything appropriate in his time. Now, for fun, I, I kind of want to challenge you. If I were to ask you to find time, could you do it? We're thinking about time. I've used the word 50 times. I'll use it 100 more, hopefully. Time. Can, can you define what time is? Now, you're going to be tempted to say, well, yeah, of course I know what time is. It's 11.27. No, you just measured time. You, you, you can say, well, time, well, yeah, that's, that's before and after. No, that's a measurement of time. Well, it's past, present, future. No, that's a, that's a way we, we talk about time. It's hard to actually understand what time is. We all know it. We all experience it. We all try to measure it. But, but really, it's, it's something much bigger than us. And this is why it's so encouraging to hear this word that God is sovereign over time. God has control over all time. He orders our days. The preacher continues, verse 11. He has put eternity into man's heart. This is many folks' favorite verse in Ecclesiastes. There, there's something beautiful that C.S. Lewis pulls out of this and that there's, there's a way in which God has given us a, a, an idea of something so much greater than us, beyond us, that it, it should make us want to long for who God is. We, 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 we inherently, internally, intuitively know because God has given us a, a knowledge of something so much more than we experience. There, there must be something more. But, but notice here the, the main thrust of what he's saying isn't how great that inter eternity is, but that it helps us see what we're missing. 
He has put eternity into man's heart. We, we have a concept. We, 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 we wrestle what time is, wrestle what eternity might be. But the whole point of that is that yet so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The, the whole idea that we understand a greatness of time, a, a before in time, a, a later in time, an eternity, is that we actually realize we don't know anything. We, 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 we don't understand. We, we can trust there's a God who makes all things appropriate, but, but it's hard to trace his finger. We don't have a place to stand to understand what's he, what's he, what he's up to. Two really important truths we've learned about God in time that I think are important here. God makes all things appropriate in its time. Time is not meaningless. It's not directionless. We, we can see there's a God who is great over time. We're, we're, we're going to reject deism here. But secondly, from, from the preacher's standpoint thus far, where he's taking us, we don't have an understanding of what he's up to. We, we, we can't perceive, we, we can't understand, we can't know what he's done and what he's going to do, and therefore, what he's doing. Again, this is a Genesis 3 wisdom. Let's continue. Verses 12 and 14. We, we start to see some, some other solutions here. Notice the, the parallelism. I perceived and I perceived. We're, we're getting some, we're making some traction now. We're, we're moving ahead. The preacher tells us, I perceive that there is nothing better for them and to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. If you're here last week, we got another nothing better. This is beyond, you can't have more than one nothing better, right? That would make something better than the other. It's like when you ask somebody, what's your favorite? They can't tell you one thing. Nothing better. It's actually very similar. Here's something, nothing better. It's to enjoy what God has given you. There's a great doctrine of God and what we have, very similar to what we can see more fully in James. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, James tells us. Here, our preacher, he's able to recognize whatever we have is a gift of God. Whatever we have is meant to be enjoyed because it's a gift of God. There's nothing better than to recognize God gives you good things to enjoy. And let's not miss this very important declaration. Do good. I perceive there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good. That's a gift to man. What's the end of the matter in Ecclesiastes? Fear God. Obey his commandments. There's a high calling to, to do what's good. We could go to the uh, psalm we, we heard earlier from Hoon and in the end establish the work of, your, of our hands. Help us to do the good that's right. It's a gift. This is just stewardship. The second thing we perceive, he perceives that we get to follow along with. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. 
so that people fear before him. We now have the end of the matter right here. Fear him, do good. Fear God, keep his commandments. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. That that last phrase is is, is a a little difficult to translate. I believe the best way to think of this is God seeks to continue this cycle of what is always happening. He, He keeps life moving and going. He is in control. But notice the absolute sovereignty here. Whatever God does, it endures forever. Nothing to be added to it, nothing to be taken away. Why? God has done it. It's perfect in power. And, and the right response is so that people fear before him. Verse 15, if, if, if we don't know who that God is, it could, it could sound like some kind of epic from, from Greece or, or uh, uh, ancient times where it's just fate driving along. But here, it's God is active. God is doing. God is giving. So that people would fear him. Have reverence for him. Now, the whole point here is that God's sovereign. He's in control. This isn't deism. He's not a watchmaker that just kind of wound everything up and stepped back. But you also haven't quite gotten to Yahweh, the covenant-making promise keeping God yet either. Let's hang out here. Man has been given some notion of God. He has put eternity in our hearts. The, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Or we could say it another way. The beginning of wisdom is God is God and I am not. That might not sound so profound to you, but I encourage you to write that down. God is God. I am not. We, we must know from, from Scripture, we actually do know. He, he's given us everything we need to know him. Internally, he's put eternity into our hearts. Externally, God makes it very clear. In Acts 17, we, we hear from a, uh, in him we live and move and have our being. That's something that should be obvious to all people at all times. Paul's very explicit in Romans 1. Everything that has been made plain to all people is that God exists. God's shown it to them. Internally, God gives us our our conscience and an internal presence of of a knowledge of, of him who is greater. And externally, he's showing us. But what do we do with that knowledge that God gives us according to Romans 1? We suppress it. We ignore it. We reject it. We, we call this general revelation because it's available to all people at all time. And all people at all time, because of sin, suppress it. The, the, the knowledge God gives us only makes us culpable, without excuse. The knowledge God gives all is, is not a saving knowledge, but it's a knowledge that we should be able to look up and say, there is a God we should honor and give thanks. That's what sin is according to Romans 1. When God tells us who he is and we suppress it, God gives us over to our sin. And the way we suppress it is by not honoring him as God. 
giving thanks. If you're not a believer this morning, we're thankful you're here. I pray you would actually have a presence of an eternal, internal conviction as you're hearing a word better than what creation can tell you, what your own conscience can tell you, you're, you're hearing the, the very word of the Lord. This is special revelation. This is what God says so that you can know exactly who he is, what he's like, who you are, and most importantly, how you can be saved. God did not design this world with chaos, wickedness, and disorder. That's what we brought as his image bearers when we rejected him. God tells us, even though we've rejected him, he's made promises to save us. And those promises are all clear for us today if we look to Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer, the most important thing you can do is look to Jesus, who died on the cross for your sins. The sin of not honoring God or giving thanks to God. So that you might be forgiven. He died a death that we deserve so that our penalty is paid so that you can be forgiven, but it means you must believe in him. Today, the word says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe in him. Believer, what should be true of the Christian? Our lives should be marked with honoring him, giving him thanks. If that's the the crux of the sin problem in Romans 1, shouldn't that be the the opposite be true of the, the Christian? That our, our lives should be marked with honoring God, fearing Him, revering Him, giving Him thanks as the God who gives all good gifts? The life abundantly, life abundant Christ promises marked with honor and gratitude. Again, let, let, we think about what He's saying, the preacher's saying in light of the whole book, it's fear God and, and obey God. Does, does this preacher assume the good God we know from Scripture who, who shows steadfast love to generations, who promises himself to love his people and, and come and be their shepherd? Is, is this the same God? Is he, is he aware? Is he, is, he, is he assuming the God who created all things good and orderly and has promised to restore all those good and orderly things? I don't know, but this is where we're going to come to the point in, in Ecclesiastes and say, I I think we're going to say something a little different than what he's already said. Because in verse 11, he declares, we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That is true if you do not have God's word. But, but God has told us what he's doing from the beginning to the end. In the beginning, God. Created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, we, we know because God speaks that after we sin, he, he quickly comes and pursues man and woman who are hiding in shame because they've rejected him and he pursues them and calls out to them. And then he makes a promise. I'll destroy that serpent. I'll destroy sin. I'll destroy death. And then we just trace what he's up to from the beginning as he keeps making promises and keeping promises and making promises and keeping promises till finally they're all fulfilled in Christ. We, we think about what God is doing from the beginning and end. We, we can know God is good. And he uses all his power for what is good. We can know God makes promises from the beginning and he keeps them all the way to the end. But what is God up to in time? 
I want us to reflect upon two passages that make it clear we do know what God is doing at some level. He has told us what we need to know what he's doing in time. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. We might ask, why has God been so slow? Why did God take so long? We can go back and look at Genesis 15 and see how God has actually made it clear he has a plan that's going to take time. And it might seem slow to us, 2 Peter 2 tells us. But what we can trust is God's time is perfect. In the fullness of time, at the right time, at the perfect time, that's when God himself came and entered this world as a baby in a womb. When the father sent his son to become like us in every way so that he would walk with us. So here we could enjoy his adoption. We could become sons of God. So, so God is perfect in what he's promised he, he, we, we, we had to skip over so much between the fall with Adam and Jesus, but it's perfect when he came. And one more verse, Romans 5, 6. For while, it's a time reference, we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God is perfect, not only as a good creator and sovereign sustainer of this earth, but as a God who who made us in his image, who gave us a command, who watched us break that command, and then immediately promised he would save us from our own sin. He's perfect in fulfilling his promise and that at the right time, Jesus took on flesh. And at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We can praise him. We can have great confidence. Let's go back to one more declaration and, and, and think about it in light of the gospel. Verse 14. God has done it. That's good news for us. Because the salvation he promised, the salvation he accomplished, The death for your sin. The once for all sacrifice paid. The the once for all resurrection to give you new life. The once for all sealing of the Holy Spirit in your heart. God has done it. Be, Be of good courage. God has done it. Go back into the verses. If that's what God has done, and I believe we, 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 we can see this is true. Nothing can be added. Nothing taken away. It's forever. But is what God has done for you, having the proper response so that you may revere him, fear him, have reverence for him, worship him, and obey him. 
Our author's giving us some hope, but the gospel tells us so much more hope and that at the right time, God is working to bring about salvation for us. He has done it. Are we allowing that to lead us to worship? Our last section, God judges our time. Time is relentless. There is a God who is sovereign over time. We can step back to see all of Scripture, to see what He's done from the beginning to the end. We, we ended last week on the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, beginning to end, we see it. It's, it's good. God has done it. But now God judges our time. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. This is a problem that we would also see, isn't it? In the place of justice, where justice should be, we see wickedness. When we look to the the high courts where a judge should sit, instead of justice, we would see somebody taking bribes or, or, or declaring innocent, not guilty, in terms of a court of law. We would see police officers not using their power for justice. They would use it for wickedness. We would see pastors using the authority they have to, to, to bring about selfish gain rather than to care for others. We would see husbands who are supposed to be using a, a position of authority to bring about justice and goodness and using it for wickedness. We see this. We, we, we understand what he's saying here, right? Where there should be righteousness according to God's way, there's, there's evil. This is why kings were told, according to God's law, to write down their own copy of God's word so that they would be ruled by God's word. This is why elders must first hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught so they would then be uh, leading with a fear of the Lord. This is why parents must train the children in the admonition of the Lord. They must know the Lord so that he, they can make him known. Our preacher's got his finger on something that's really important here. It's terrifying when authorities are unfair or abusive or wicked. It's paralyzing to watch, to to experience, to be under it. The history of our world has more injustice than justice. It's wicked when there's two different systems of, 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 of law. But I want to be clear, the, the focus of the preacher is for those who have authority. He, he's speaking to those who are in authority and he's telling them, where I see you having an authority in place of justice, I see you as wicked. He, he's calling out those who have authority and he's making it clear, I see wickedness where you should have justice and righteousness. Verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. We have a really important solution here. God will judge. Notice he judges the righteous and the wicked. He's impartial. He will judge us for what we do. He will judge us with a perfect justice. The comfort we should have here. God will judge. There's a way in which we could say that the fool and the wise will die the same in his vanity, but 
But here, after, after that death, there's a judgment. He's going to judge everyone. This, at some level, is a comfort. God is equitable in his judgment. And it's also a warning. Verse 18, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see they, them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. All right, here, here's where we got to get into a, what's he saying? What, what, why is he calling them beast? Because it's true and it's not true. I, I believe here, and the reason I want to make sure in view, he's, he's got authorities who are abusing their power. And he's wanting them to see the, the same way you as a human being with authority are treating other human beings like beasts to rule over, not to care for. To, to, to exercise God's good rule over, not to use God's good uh, authority for their well-being. You're nothing but a beast. You're just like the beast. You yourself are beasts. It's a post-Genesis 3 world we're working on here, and we'll, we're going we're gonna to hold that up. It, are we just like beasts? Well, no, but, but here his point is very clear. He's taunting those who have elevated themselves and abusing others. God's testing you so that you would see you're, you're like a beast. Verse 19, he's going to explain why he said this. For, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so the other dies. Do all the same breath, a man has no advantage over the beast for all his vanity. I'll go to one place, for all are from the dust, and to dust shall return. Notice his argument is pretty convincing. You're nothing but a beast because as you're both going to die, you both came from the same place, you both have the same breath, you both have to die. You're both going to an end. Now, okay, let's just have some fun. I'm going to have fun. You can have fun if you want. How did he know the beast, came, the, the, the beast came from dust? That's from Genesis 1, right? That, 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 that's not something we, we discover from, from scientific inquiry or observation. Now, maybe sometimes we've got to realize this preacher is saying things as if he's living in this world, but, but he has access to, to the full scriptures or, or, or scriptural knowledge that he's not always using. But, but here he, he actually says, they, they all came from dust and you're going to go to dust. You're going to die the same. You breathe the same. You're going to the same place. Verse 19 said, the man has no advantage. And what he's getting at, no, man doesn't have an advantage. You're going to die. We do know man has an advantage over beast, though, right? Man rules beast. Beasts do not rule man. That's Genesis one twenty six. That's clear in Genesis 2. And also a way in which it's not clear that beasts are going to have to give an answer for the way they live before God. But every human being must give an answer to God for how they live. Verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Question mark. All right, if you want to build a theology that your pet is in heaven, this is your verse. 
However, I don't think that's what he's teaching. I think he's asking a question to show we don't know what the afterlife looks like. We don't know what happens afterwards. And is what he's driving at. Here's the point. We all die. We will be judged. If you were with us last week, do you, do you remember how he, he kind of just keeps going through stanzas and it just keeps getting worse and worse? Oh, the wise and the fool, they die alike. So I hated life. All right, at that point, in, the, in, in, in his moving all so long in chapter 2, it's why even have wisdom because we all die. Life, life ends. And then he goes on, the worst thing that happens after that is that somebody else gets to play with your toys. Okay, that was the worst thing that we had to wrestle with last week. That was the daunting reality that life ends and someone else gets your stuff. Well, this week is so much more daunting. When life ends, when life ends, when you die, you you stand before God and give an answer for how you lived in his time. That's much more significant than somebody else playing with your toys. Now, this passage, it's, it's meant to give a warning and a comfort. It's comforting for us today. At least those of us who have recently seen a video of five police officers who beat a man to death. Justice definitely will happen. God is just. When somebody abuses power, who are supposed to be protecting others, and instead of protecting, they, they, they take life. He, hear this. When you see it and you're in despair, or you experience it in your despair, justice will happen. It might not happen the way we want, when we want, how we want, but it will perfectly, absolutely happen. Those who abuse power will Give an answer. And they're going to answer to him who judges perfectly and righteous. We as Christians need to be clear. We, we have a call to protect the vulnerable. We, we're active in, in promoting justice and righteousness. There's a way in which we're not going to make this world just and right. Because we're ungodly. We're wicked. We're part of the problem. So we, we, we work to make this world more just and right. We, we, we labor asking God that it will establish the work of our hands, but we know ultimately God is the one who will bring vengeance. As we go back, who are the wicked? Are we the wicked? What is God going to do with our wickedness? Because one day we will all die and face judgment. And because I believe what's in focus here is the authorities abusing their power for selfish gain. There's a way in which those who have an authority, there's a higher judgment, a more pressing judgment. Boy, is that terrifying. We just nominated James to be an elder and Crawford and Patrick to be deacons. You got a few more days left to reconsider. Church, you got a few more days to consider if we should affirm them. But let me be clear. 
The only people who should be afraid of this judgment are those who want to take on a role of authority and use it selfishly. Those who know God, who uses all of his authority to pour himself out for others, that's what we're supposed to do. The the, the role of authority God gives is is to follow him and that he gives himself over. But here we we see the, the clear declaration. Anyone who's going to take on authority or abuse authority, they will face God and they will be judged. At the same time, we've got to ask, if everybody who sins... If everybody who abuses their words, if everybody who, who, who mis, mis, mistreats others has to stand before God, then, then who can stand? That's why I want to take us back to Romans 5. At the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. That's the only hope any of us have. That when we stand before God, Jesus stands with us. It's the only hope we have. There's nothing to boast of. There's nothing to speak of that we think we can convince God that we don't deserve any kind of wrath. It's only that at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly, and that's why when we die, if we believed in him, he stands with us. This morning, as we wrestle with time, every life has a certain limit. It begins and it ends. God appoints our days. We cannot add to them. He's revealed himself to us so that we might honor him. He's given himself over so that we can know his salvation. He's given us good work to do so we can pray, establish the work of our hands, help us to to commit to the work that is not in vain, that it can last forever. Christian, it's a gift from God. The the moments we have, the the time we have, it's fragile. It's fragile. Precious. They're, they're fleeting. They're fleeting moments to, 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 to be moments of, of glorifying God or gratifying sin. How easy it is for every moment to be wasted or every moment to be used for the glory of God. There's two passages that speak to this very clearly. Colossians 4, 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. There's a stewardship of time that's commanded by Christ. Ephesians 5.15, look carefully, be watchful, be alert. Then how you walk, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. It's no accident that wisdom and time are side by side in both those declarations. Our own church covenant reads, we'll be good stewards of our time and resources. If you've been in the membership class with me when I teach this, I, I, I do point out that's kind of a weird thing to say, isn't it? Time and resources? Time's a resource. We, we separate it because it's the most valuable. It, it, it's the one we, we, we all have the same of in terms of we've got 24 hours a day. Are we being a good time, a good steward of our time? Or are we, are we evaluating how, how am I spending my time? Am I, am I disciplined in my time as a disciple? Am I, am, I, am I committed to the things that are truly in the fear of the Lord? While it feels like we're at a time, I want to conclude with what I think is the most terrifying verses on time. The passage reads, 
In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. What passage is that? 2 Samuel 11. David isn't where he's supposed to be, when he's supposed to be. At the time when kings go out, David stayed home. And what happened when David stayed home when he was supposed to be able to battle? He saw a woman named Bathsheba. He laid with her. He impregnated her. He then tried to murder her. And eventually, or she didn't try to dupe her husband, and then he murdered her husband. And what's incredible about the story is it's so clear. There was a time. He, he, he needed to be where he was supposed to be at the right time. And because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do when he was, uh, at the right time, he, he found a great sin. Now, now, this is the guy who wouldn't even touch Saul because he was the anointed of God because even when Saul was trying to kill him. How did he get there? Because he wasn't obedient in the right time. It, it's incredible that God let him confess that sin and forgave that sin, but the devastating consequence of that sin. What, what a warning about Stewarding our time. Christian, fear the Lord. Obey his commandments. For he will judge even our secrets. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. That it gives us more than just knowing there's a God who, who, who is controlling things like fate we can know your promises. We can know how you have even helped us to see who you are as the God who is holy, holy, holy. Who is abundant in mercy and forgiveness. Who extends patience and steadfast love. But it's also absolutely true in justice. Lord, help us to know how you have ordered our days. Help us to find comfort in your order. Help us to find uh, confidence in how we should seek to make the most use, the best use of this time, to redeem this time, because you've redeemed us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.